Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. Recording in progress. Hello, everybody. Bliss and I are back. Liz is in Ojai, California, with a lovely coffee, and I'm uh, here with my yeah. with my grape juice. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, um, yeah, I uh, I lucked out. I'm in a I'm in an absolutely epically beautiful place for the next three weeks. I feel like um, I've been just given a gift. Feel really good. Feeling feeling really good. Well, that's exciting. And so you're, yeah, you're in yeah. Southern California, sort of. I mean, I consider Ojai to be Southern Cal. You probably don't, but I do. Yeah. So uh-huh. I hopefully get to see you this week. Maybe I'll come up and Yay. hang out with you a little bit. Um, I have somebody Great. who um, has been ruptured membranes for a couple of days. And we're waiting on her. Mm-hmm. She had some contractions last night. And then they sort of the sun came up and did its usual change in mental status and contractions sort of went away. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go see her that right after we're done with the podcast and have a talk with her about our options. And I prefer not okay. to do a vaginal exam on her. So yeah. um, all her vitals are stable. The baby's been fine. She was in the other day for a, a biophysical profile. Her AFI, despite being ruptured, was over eight, which was great. And she had a 10 out of a 10. And I'm, we're just sort of waiting, which is sort of what we do in our model. It's what uh, our guest from last week would have done. <laughs> yeah. Right. 48 hours about, Stu? Oh, a little more. <laughs> yeah. And GBS negative or? Yeah, unknown, definitely, or? definitely GBS negative. Right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. What would you do differently if she was? GBS? Well, the other thing. What would you do differently if GBS positive? Um, well, informed consent, mm-hmm. the risk goes up, right? So would you, over, would you have just hours. given her some antibiotics or would you have told her you, she's got to go in and get induced? What would you have done? Oh, no, I, I've had somebody ruptured before with, uh, who declined antibiotics, who had a extended period of time ruptured. So right. just informed consent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We've talked about GBS before too, um, transmission rate and all that. So. We do have that information. Yeah. What were yeah. you going to say? Yeah, most people are going to take the antibiotics, um, but you know, there are some people who don't want to. Right. So, um, another thing um, that I did this week was that I went and met with Laurel Phillips from the Santa Barbara Birth Center. They're looking for some. They're looking for LMCNM um, to start as soon as possible. So I'm not the right fit. Um, because I really like uh, working uh, just in a solo practice or maybe even just one person, like what I'm thinking about doing in slow. Um, but they are in need and Santa Barbara is beautiful and it seems like a really great practice. Um, so if anybody is looking to uh, consider moving or is you know wanting to consider being in a group practice, this is a good opportunity. I told her I'd pass it along. 
Yeah, there's some great midwives there, and uh, they do work in an environment which is a little bit sticky with uh, Cottage Hospital, but they have a, a very tenuous uh, tr- uh, truce going on with them, and sort of there's some mutual respect between some of those midwives and the leader at, over at that hospital. So, you know, when the hospital was refusing to do VBAC, um, after several years of negotiating, the birth center just said, well, we're going to do them anyway. So, yeah. Yeah. So I like that about them. So that's good. The hospital still looks at it as if it's, you know, a keg of dynamite ready to explode. But but um, well, she she told me yesterday that they will refuse to give them uh, pain pain relief. Yeah. Pretty sure that's majorly against all ethical things. But yeah. Well, Bliss, after we're done with today's podcast, I think you're going to find that there's a lot of things that are against all ethical uh, practices. <laughs> when we get to uh, what I want to call Bliss and Dr. Stu's Blitz, um, we're going to go through a bunch of things relatively short. And then what we got on, on uh, our big topic today is going to be um, a paper that came out about risk of infectious diseases in newborns exposed to, quote, alternative perinatal practices, unquote. Yeah. Which means yeah. what? Uh, most of the things. Yeah, the, things uh, we yeah do. <laughs> the stuff that they don't consider to be mainstream. So, you know, their uh, right. their moral absolutism is that this is something that's not okay. And so they put out a paper in the American Academy of Pediatrics authored the paper, which is what you know all pediatricians are going to read, and then they're going to consider that to be gospel. So we're going to break that down uh, later today so we could have our midwives and clients, our listeners all have some good arguments when this sort of thing might come up in the pediatric world, especially at the hospital birthing. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any uh, reviews or anything you wanna start with? Cause I've got a really nice letter from one of our mutual clients that I thought I'd read. You start that. Okay. Yeah, do that. All right, so this is from Ruth, who we all, uh, several of us in the birthing instincts world know. And she sent us a letter the other day saying a little late, but this is beautiful Sarah at four years old. And every year as I reflect on my birth, I am so grateful for the support I received from you both. I really loved my birth and it changed my life in the remarkable ways for the better. So thank you for all that you do. I love listening to your podcast. It's actually the only podcast I listen to consistently. And I thank you for speaking the truth, which is so hard to do today. Wait till you hear something I'm going to do at the end today. Uh, Ruthie, you know, it's going to get harder. We moved to Florida about six months ago, and the freedom is amazing. But unfortunately, I'm learning COVID brought a lot of fear into the midwives here. In Miami, I think they are all vaxxed and all wear masks at births. I know a lot of women are nervous as well because transfer rates have gone way up as well. And I had, had I been here four years ago, I wouldn't be allowed to have had a home birth since a midwife is not allowed to attend a first VBAC. You know, it's interesting that they won't yeah. allow them to attend a first VBAC, but I guess they can tend to attend a second VBAC. As if weird. there's a significant difference between <laughs> the two. Um, I am beyond yeah. grateful for the team that I had that believed in me more than myself. All your families that get either of you to attend their birth are very lucky. Again, thank you so much for all that you both continue to do. My family is grateful forever. Ruth. Hmm. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Sweet of her to stay in touch. 
I know. And it was, it was a great birth. And, and I, even though it was my client, I spent the whole birth on the couch. If you remember? <laughs> I get you slept. Well, she didn't want me in there. Right. And I, and I let you sleep. So I woke you up after the baby was born. <laughs> I know. Well, if I tell our listeners why she didn't want me in there, I think uh, because she's Orthodox Jewish and she preferred not to have yeah. other than for yeah. emergencies. Right. But yeah. she felt more comfortable yeah. having me on the couch. So there I was. <laughs> okay. There you are. Um, <laughs> okay. So um, this one is from an Illinois midwife. And she said, it's titled Role Models. These two not only share great information for clients, but also serve as role models for other practitioners who are doing community births. Please do not ever stop doing what you're doing. We need you, Deborah Lawrence in Illinois. And since we're going to be recording the podcast until um, 2033, I guess we're <laughs> going to keep doing it. We're going to do it until, you know one of said? Us, uh, until one of us can't breathe anymore. Croaks. Yeah, as long as one of us, as long as we both can fog a mirror, we're on. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know, that's that's a funny thing that reminds me of when I when I at one point I was looking for a, a partner. We were we were looking for a partner in our Century City office, and my partner who passed away was my best friend at the time, Dave Klein. Um, mm -hmm. We used to joke around. We'd have dinner once in a while, the four, the four of us, me, Howie, George, well, five of us, me, Howie, George, Dave, and Erwin. And um, we were looking like, who should we get to in our practice? And we were talking about, well, maybe we should get a woman because they attract more. Maybe we should get a, a, you know, a hardworking guy or whatever. And Dave says, let's just get anybody who fogs a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> because we just needed another body. Okay, to help to help us with our call and stuff like that. So um, he was joking, of course, but he had a great sense of humor. So yeah. Uh, okay, another another uh, letter from Leah about our "We Survived COVID" podcast. Okay. By the way, I just want to do mention that that Ruth is another one of our clients who escaped California. Just so you know. <laughs> right. Yay! Um, I just listened to your "We Survived COVID" podcast. This is from Leah. I also experienced all the symptoms except the headache that you did recently. I know it was COVID despite my not getting a PCR test. I had my antibodies tested a few weeks afterwards and my doctor told me that he will not write me a letter showing natural immunity, even though it came back showing that I have antibodies. Maddening, but not surprising. I'll add that I was sick for two weeks and was home with a newborn and she is just fine. She sneezed and coughed a few times when I was sick, but otherwise absolutely fine. My nine and seven-year-olds were also just fine. They're not vaxxed. Again, I'll digress for a second. Do not vaccinate your children if they're healthy, period. I'm exclusively nursing, and I'm grateful my baby is getting some of my natural antibodies. I've considered putting some breast milk into my older daughter's smoothies. <laughs> I, share this to, I share this to encourage you and Bliss to keep up your fantastic work to dispel the fear and question the propaganda. Best Leah. Yay. Yay. Uh, I'm glad you're feeling better, Leah. That's great. Thanks for sharing. Yep. I really think that this is a, a an absolute, I don't know if crime is the right word, to give it to children. And especially with all the things that are happening right now with the vaccine not working and the Israeli studies and other studies coming out showing that vaccinated people 
are actually, they have negative efficacy, which means that if they're vaccinated, they're more likely to get Omicron and be hospitalized with it than people who have natural immunity. Um, and that children are not affected, uh, you know, in any significant way. And now Pfizer has put in a application to go down to six months, which we knew was coming. And is there any chance yeah. that people in the FDA will say no? Any chance? Doubt it. Probably Hello? not. Bueller? No. Bueller? No. 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 Okay. No. No. Okay. <laughs> no. okay so um, I wanted to just go off on a tangent here and talk about a variety of subjects that sort of all have something in common with them. And it's it's essentially what we at the podcast have done for a long time and tell you that that trust no one in authority telling you anything because you can't trust them anymore because they've made clear that their priorities are not science and health. Their priorities are political or control or power or money. So when you see some of these things, you're going to say, um, yeah, you can't trust people. You can't trust the media. And not only can you not trust the media, what they tell you, you can't trust the media because of what they don't tell you and what they don't cover. And all the things, um, the only, you know, the only reason they're covering Joe Rogan is because they want to get rid of him. They didn't, they, you know, they didn't cover the content that he had with Dr. Malone. They just called him names. Um, it's never about the science. And that's what, uh, that's what's really important. So the first story was from a midwife friend of ours, Lindsay, down in Orange County. And uh, <laughs> she said, my parents got, well, she just send me a text. He says, my parents got COVID last week and both are unvaccinated. And I was really worried about my dad. He has COPD. So she drove to Arizona to get monoclonal antibodies to bring them back to California. And she gave them to her dad and he turned around like within 24 hours. But he couldn't right. find them. Because he couldn't, he get, couldn't them. get them here? Yeah. yeah. Because, because there's just a shortage or because they were denying him? Uh, that I don't know, but I oh, trust okay. that if Lindsay, okay. Lindsay has a lot of connections. So yeah. I trust that if somebody wouldn't in down in that area would have been able to give them to her, um, she would have gotten for her parents. So uh, the fact that she had to get them from another state. So yeah. anyway, so, so Lindsay, you can expect the, uh, the feds to be knocking on your front door at, at any moment. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. You're welcome. Right. <laughs> Okay, um, one of the people that I've quoted many times on this podcast, um, and I've not quoted her favorably, uh, because she doesn't deserve to be quoted favorably, is this Dr. Leanna Wen. Dr. Leanna Wen is the CNN expert on COVID, formerly the uh, head of Planned Parenthood, which obviously gives her great expertise for being a spokesperson on coronavirus, right? Right. <laughs> so she's, she's basically just a talking head. And if you remember what she was saying three, four months ago was that people who are unvaccinated should be made to have their lives made more difficult. All these things that she was yeah. saying was that, that, you know, masks work and vac everybody should be vaccinated. And if you get COVID, you should still get vaccinated. And people who aren't vaccinated should, you know, have a harder time in their lives. And this is what she was saying. And then in December, she doubled down on her recent comments that cloth masks are not that don't work. So she said with cloth masks that don't work, which was great. 
She says they're essentially useless against coronavirus. Okay. She says they're not appropriate for this pandemic. However, she encouraged view viewers to double mask with high quality masks typically used in the medical setting. Ideally, you're double masking. So if you really want to do that cloth mask too, you can do the three-ply surgical mask and then the cloth mask that's more well-fitting on top of that. Okay, CNN's expert. So cloth mask- And if mask you're high risk, that's good information to know. Yeah, but cloth masks don't work. So get a good mask and then put a cloth mask over it. <laughs> so is that is that a fashion statement? What is what is what's that all about? Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. well, totally fashion. Yeah. Yesterday, a story came out. Now, this will be two weeks from now when this podcast comes out. But so February 8th, the story comes out um, that CNN medical analysis, Dr. Leanna Wynn said Monday that mass mandate should end because the science has changed. But most of the data she cited as justification has been available for months, if not years. Okay. So yeah, the what's happening with Leanna Wynn, like a lot of people, is they know they're reading the American public, and the American public has had it, and so they're trying to figure out ways to ease themselves out of being the masked totalitarians, and now they're saying that the reason we can get rid of masks is because the science has changed, but the science hasn't changed. That's a lie. Okay, these things we've known. All, all I care. All I care about is that they're starting to talk about the mask mandates ending, and I am delighted. Yeah, she says that the decision to mask should now be on individuals and families. Yes. Rather than government entities. So how does she feel about that in schools? <laughs> isn't, the school, isn't schools government entities? She should have said that we don't think masks Public. should be masked in schools. All right, then she said this statement, which you let me know if you think this one's true or not. She said, she cited the fact that vaccines protect well against the Omicron variant of COVID-19. I don't agree. Okay. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. You know what? I'm going to give you the uh, provider bell as a, as a higher education bell from my mom. Okay. <laughs> and the protection offered by high quality masks to the wearer is reasoning for the shift. So we get... Protection from high-quality masks, but who the hell is wearing a high-quality mask? Very few, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, everybody's wearing those little mm -hmm. blue masks that you get from the hospital or a cloth one that's got, you know, your favorite hockey player's face on it with no teeth, that sort of thing. They're, <laughs> they're really cute. Um, no, they're not cute. So the fact is that none of this information is new, though. And the Center for Disease Control and Prevention updated its guidance a month ago to reflect that cloth masks provide little protection against Omicron. So why would she say that they do? I, you know, when herself said back in December that a cloth mask wasn't going to cut it. So basically what I'm saying is it's just another reason not to trust these people. That what they're saying to you is, is well, bullshit. I can say that, right. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's our podcast. You can say bullshit. Next on, next on the Blitz. And this one, um, two of my, our colleagues in Hawaii are fighting um, to keep traditional midwifery in Hawaii. And because yeah. Hawaii just licensed its midwives, but there's a cutout or carve out for um, traditional midwifery. But there are certain people 
that are still trying to get rid of traditional midwifery or put a put a, um, a what's called a sundowning effect on it. Like by 2023 or 2024, those midwives have to either get licensed or they can't practice anymore. So the people who are supporting this legislation, two of them, uh, one is a district ACOG chair and one is a, 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 a CNM, MSN, APRN and IBCLC named Leah Minton, who apparently is one of the co-authors of this paper called Neonatal Hypoxic Ischemic Encephalopathy and Planned Home Birth. And she's known to be biased against home birth. And she's known to be somebody who's been promoting the legislation against home uh, against midwives. And I'll, I'll go to the end first, because at the end, the last thing it says is, the authors have no conflicts of interest to disclose. Okay, now how is it that you have... Yeah, yeah okay, you got it. I, I know the listeners get it. This is my snarkiness coming out. But how do you? How are you an advocate for passing this legislation? You put out a paper that makes home birth necessarily look bad, although we're going to break it down in a second. And then say you have no conflict of interest. Right. That's it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in all of the studies that you read, they say there's no conflict of interest. So that's a pretty standard thing. But, you know, I'm pretty frustrated. Actually, I've been on a lot of midwife groups. And I think most people know that I have a deep passion for supporting traditional midwifery and keeping it alive. Um, And I feel very frustrated amongst the midwives that there's not a lot of support for free birth, for um, traditional birth keepers. You know, it's um, it's really unfortunate that the value is not um, being upheld for, you know, the traditions of where midwifery came from all along. You know, it's not just doctors. It's It can be fellow midwives, which is quite discouraging. Yeah, the tradition of... Um of midwifery, what happens, we've seen it here in California too, back in 2014 or whatever, maybe it was a couple of years afterwards with the CNMs where some people think that if you compromise with the devil and get something passed, you'll be okay. And maybe you'll be okay, but that never works. There is no saying, you know, there is no compromising. You cannot compromise because they'll never compromise. They may get part of what they want this year, but they've got endless resources to come after what they want next year. And then year after that, and the year after that. And midwives don't have a strong lobby. They're not bribing the legislatures with junkets and, you know, campaign donations and things like that, like the um, like big medicine can do. So, you know, you're, you know, we're not going to win these things. Like right now in Iowa, the same thing is happening. They're, they're negotiating uh, legislation to license midwives. But also including limiting liability. I'm not exactly sure what that means. I didn't really look into that, but there'll be trade-offs. Midwives will be told they can't do this, they can't do that, they have to do this. All right. Um, yep. Okay. Which so, is part of you know the problem with legislation in general. But that's another that's another podcast. Yeah, I don't want to get too deep in the roots with, with this one. I just wanted to read two things that kind of what I would consider to be a, a scientific gibberish meant to confuse 
So I'm not going to get into the details, but if people want to look this study up, it's uh, in the Journal of Midwifery and Women's Health. Um, the lead author is Buchanan, Christina Buchanan. Okay, so let me read this to you and see if you can figure out what's wrong with this. Planned location of birth was classified as planned home birth or planned hospital birth. Clear. Neonates with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, which from now on I will just say HIE, were counted as planned home birth if there was documentation in the electronic health record that the intended location of birth at the onset of labor was home, regardless of whether the birth actually occurred in the home or the hospital. Yeah, that's problematic. <laughs> well, here it gets more problematic because neonates in the control group which is the hospital group who happened to be born at home, but whose birth certificate worksheet indicated that they had been intended to be born in the hospital were counted as planned hospital birth. Mm -hmm. So which women generally give birth at home unplanned? Precipitous birth. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. So they're going to count those or normal births, this, yeah. um, those quick normal births as hospital births. And they're going to yeah. count babies that are transferred from home, maybe because they had prolonged rupture membranes, weren't in labor yet, but probably 99 out of 100 of them, well, maybe not that many, but nine out of 10 of them came in in really good condition. And then something uh -huh. happened to the hospital with hypotension, over, over uh, uh, infection, overuse of Pitocin, whatever. And the baby ended up yeah. going into distress. There was a delay in getting the baby delivered. The baby suffered a brain damage and that's because of the home birth. Right. Okay. You can't have a yeah. paper with this and then your conclusions. Again, this is, this is essentially uh, inductive logic. If, if, if every step of the way something is flawed, then the whole argument is flawed. Okay, you can't just assume that well, mm -hmm. we made these things. So it's just crazy. And then I have to tell you that that people in academia, people whether it's it doesn't even have to be in medicine, it could be in anything. They speak a different language. And it, and and On you know purpose. what I mean? What? On purpose. Yeah, it's on purpose. It's like it's like trying to read a contract or or a, you know, a uh you, you buy a car. And you read, you can't read that thing, that long yellow piece of paper that's three feet long. Who reads that stuff? Or you're, or you're buying a home and it's 37 pages all requiring your signature, all in legalese that you don't understand. Well, I just want to read yeah. in their in their methodology. This is their methodology and see what you make of it, Bliss. Okay. Hopefully you okay. will still be on top of your head when I finish. Okay. We consider. I hope so. <laughs> We considered an odds ratio of four to be clinically significant and calculated that we would need 143 neonates with HIE and 572 neonates without HIE in order to detect an odds ratio of four with 80% power and an alpha of 0.5. Patient characteristics were summarized using descriptive statistics. Bivariate associations between the presence of HIE and patient characteristics were compared using two sample t-tests and for the continuous variables and the chi-squared or Fisher's exact tests for the categorical variables. An association between HIE and planned birth location was further investigated 
by calculating an odds ratio and its 95% confidence interval, a penalized backward stepwise logistic regression was fitted for the presence of HIE adjusting for the variables with a p-value of less than 0.1 from the bivariate analysis. Analysis were conducted using our statistical software version 3.6.3. Got it. Okay. Now I'm sure our listeners all know exactly what that meant, but I don't. <laughs> By the way, if anyone, if anyone understands statistics like that, then contact me because these two midwives are looking for someone to help them understand the methodology in this paper, all right, which I couldn't possibly understand. But once again, it gets, it gets you back to, um, to the uh, idea that, you know, you can't trust anyone in authority. A paper, because it's in a, in a journal, means nothing anymore. Yeah. They're, all, they're all corrupted. First of all, journals are, not, journals are motivated by their advertising, that sort of revenue. And if a lot of their revenue comes from big pharma, what's the odds they're gonna publish something that's against the vaccine or something like that? Same thing here. If journals you know, are, and their editorial boards and stuff are such that they have a bias towards hospital birthing, or they think that their moral absolutism is the only one that's possible, then they are going to make it more difficult for people to publish countering articles, which is sort of why people like me who aren't really publishing people when we, when we do write an article that's actually interesting, we can't get it in a mainstream journal. We have to put it in a, you know, an international journal or sometimes there's, there's a midwifery journal or a British journal. We might be able to get it in, but usually they're international online journals, um, which is fine because it's out there in the world literature. That's fine. But it's a bias. There's yeah. just super bias. Okay. Yep. All right. Be Next. skeptical. Next. Mm-hmm. A uh, midwife uh, in, I won't, I'll leave her name out of it, but a midwife down here in Southern California called me one night in the middle of the night because it was about 4.30 in the morning because she had just delivered a baby to a woman at term, 39 weeks, who in the seventh and eighth month had COVID, was completely better, had a 20-week ultrasound that was perfectly normal. Baby's growth was perfectly normal. The baby came out at 39 weeks, weighing four pounds, three ounces. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tiny, tiny, tiny yeah. baby. Mm-hmm. Perfect APGAR scores. Latched. They were, you know, um, so she just wanted to know what to do with this little teeny baby. And I asked her about how's the baby yeah. doing? How's that sort of thing? Is keep the baby warm? Do you have, can you get some um, frozen milk fro- or, or, su- or supplemental milk and maybe, uh, maybe use the supplemental nursing system right away? Because you can't afford for this baby to lose much weight, but mm-hmm. it's it's all its vital signs were fine. It was vigorous, mm-hmm. and I said, and so just keep an eye on it, okay? So mm-hmm. I get a call from her later that the next morning, later in the morning, and she says she spoke to one of her peers, and one of her peers says there's a law in California that says if the baby weighs under 2,500 grams, you have to call the paramedics. Which is what? Five? Five pounds, nine ounces. Uh-huh. I didn't know about that. Yeah. But again, yeah. once so it is a law? You know about that, right? I don't know if it's a law. Well, I'd have to look into according to the, I'd according have to, to this, look into it. Yeah, according to this mm-hmm. other midwife, it was a law. And that, you know, she could get mm-hmm. in huge trouble if she didn't do it. And and you know, the 
she could get investigated by the board. So she freaked out this other midwife and this other midwife didn't know what to do. So she called me and I said, well, why don't you call her pediatrician and see if her pediatrician is willing to see the baby today and we can keep the baby out of the hospital. If they take the baby to the hospital, it's likely going to be a shit show. And there's no reason to take the baby to the hospital. Everything they're going to do at the hospital, you can do at home for a rigorous baby. Okay. And a matter of fact, the baby yes. will get more attention and mm-hmm. we'll get the and they'll get the warmth and the microbiome and the love of its parents and all that stuff at home. Where in the in the hospital it'll put it'll be a little plastic square box. It'll be okay. So she called the pediatrician, and the pediatrician said he couldn't see the baby today. And if they had brought the baby in tomorrow, that he would transfer to the NICU for evaluation because he hasn't cared for a baby so small either. So that was the pediatrician. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of a like-minded pediatrician. So again, yeah. I mean, is 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 it size? Is, is it again? It's an algorithmic thing that you and I talk about. Can we individualize these things? We should be able to individualize these things, and even if it is in the law that specifies um, that the recommendation would be to call the paramedics, it still should be within the parents' rights to decline it. Yeah, the, the fear that if they we have a, a baby that's doing well, you know, and you just say, hey, I'm looking at all of the vitals. Your baby seems to be doing really well. Here are the things that we would be looking for. You know, let's take the extra precautions to do some supplemental milk just to make sure. And um, by law, I'm supposed to call the paramedics, but I want to let you know that what I'm seeing is that the baby is just fine. What would you like to do? You know, that seems to me like that's a reasonable thing for the midwife and the parents to be able to make that decision together. But and we did discuss know. that and the parents would have done that. And, and she said, I, I mean, I said, well, you could write out a consent form and you could have the parents sign it. Yeah. But she yeah. said, if I call the paramedics and the parents turn the paramedics away, what are the odds that the paramedics who don't know anything will call Child Protective Services? Right. I wouldn't call the paramedics. I would just tell the clients that that was the recommendation. Yeah, but that wasn't what the. But uh, yes. That that wasn't what the other midwife told her to do. The other midwife told her she had to call. I'm just sticking my I'm sticking my nose in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's defensive. It's what we talked about. It's it's this defensive, um, you know, charting defensive practicing that we talk about happens in the hospitals and is not in the client's best interest and is to cover your butt and to make sure you don't get sued and, you know, all of that stuff, but it's happening with midwives and I get it. You know, midwives are also afraid of, of being persecuted and losing their livelihood and all of that. But what happens to, what happens to the next generation? What happens to these babies? What happens to women's autonomy and body, bodily choice? Like, where does all that go? Don't get me started, Stu. I'm already like upset with with how things are going with midwives. Yeah, and you know what? So We've had this going on for a really long time and people are starting to see it now because of the absurdities that are going on with the with you know the one size fits all with the COVID mandates and stuff like that. So we've had this in our business for a really long time. The only other thing that's interesting yeah. about this is that she told me later on that the placenta looked really weird. Placenta had these big fatty nodules in it. So I asked her if she sent the placenta to pathology and she said, oh, no, we didn't do that. We should have. And I said, it would have been really interesting to find out if they could have found 
something related to COVID that altered that yeah. placenta. Because that kid at 20 weeks was fine. And then about seven months, yeah. when the baby would have weighed about you know, three, three and a half pounds, um, something happened and that baby just essentially stopped growing. And, and my question is, I mean, obviously there weren't any other ultrasounds, but my question is the midwife didn't notice that? I didn't get into that. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't get into prenatal care and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, we can be fooled sometimes. I mean, sometimes on the opposite side, midwives will send somebody to me with a fundal height of 34 at 38 weeks, and I would do an ultrasound, and the baby weighs eight pounds. (laughs) So yeah, no, totally, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, so changing, and we're still on the blitz here, but changing tune a little bit. This is an LA County story. Um, LA County approves a motion that would discipline workers who don't comply with the COVID vaccine mandate. So here we are, this is dated today or yesterday, and here, uh, February 8th. And, and here we are knowing what we know about what's going on with the vaccines and how they're not working and how Omicron is, is resist, the vaccines don't do anything against Omicron and that natural immunity is probably better than that. And we know that from really good studies in other countries. Do not trust the studies that come out of the United States. There's, there's too many uh, uh, factors, but if every other country in the world is putting out studies that differ from the ones you hear from the United States, maybe that should raise a, a, a flag too. Um, anyway, At this least is, it in the thought process. Yes. So sheriff, the sheriff of LA County's name is Alex Villanueva. He's declining, he's been declining to enforce the county's COVID-19 vaccine mandate among his deputies. Yesterday, the Board of Supervisors gave preliminary approval to a proposal that would give the county personnel director overriding authority to discipline any employee who failed to comply. So in other words, it's always been the sheriff who runs his department, but he's running the department the way the the bureaucrats don't like it. So the bureaucrats are going to pass an ordinance that says that, well, you no longer have the authority. Now we have the authority to tell you what to do with your employees. This is a, this is tyranny. This is this is exactly what they do when they can't use the system as it is. Then they mess with the system. So, Villanueva, the sheriff, says that would result in firing of four thousand members of his department, which has about thirteen thousand, fourteen thousand sheriffs. So you can do the math, it's like thirty percent or something like that. So supervisors, I'm going to name them: Sheila Kuehl and Holly Mitchell. Um, introduced the motion saying countywide compliance with the employee vaccine mandate remains a challenge four months after its issuance. I wonder why. What's wrong wrong with these people? With everything, again, the narrative is failing and they're doubling down on useless tyranny. And the question is, why are they doing that? Why? You can't pay, you can't bribe somebody enough to do that. They've got to know what they're doing is wrong. They see their own politicians not following the rules anyway. I, I just So the sheriff's department, um, in the sheriff's department, listen, 60% of the employees are complying. Um, they say 74% of the more than 5,000 COVID-19 related workers' compensation claims filed by county employees as of January 29th had been filed by employees in the sheriff's department. All right. Well, what does that mean? How many of those 
filing were vaccinated? How many were unvaccinated? They don't tell you. Yeah. All right. And by the way, maybe cops are at a greater risk of getting exposed to COVID than somebody who works in a cubicle all day. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, again, you, these, these things are put out there with a, here's the end point we want to get to. Let's publish something or let's put out a press release that says, that gets us there as opposed to following the evidence and see where it gets you. Okay. So she says, this data illustrates vaccination's vital role in limiting the spread of COVID-19 and thus the urgent need to increase vaccination rates across the entire county workforce. Does it really? How do we know? How many of those 70, how many of those workers who filed compensation claims have been vaccinated? Let's find out. Let's have a number. The fact that there's no number in there makes me think it's probably high. Because if it was almost all unvaccinated workers, it would be in the story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so this is where it gets really interesting. I mean, this last thing is really funny. It says, the proposed shift in disciplinary authority would give a death blow to public safety in Los Angeles County that would have little impact. He said 9,881 department members are fully vaccinated in the last, and in the last 30 days, 342 have tested positive for a 3.46 positivity rate in the vaccinated sheriffs, okay? Deputy sheriffs. Mm -hmm. Among the 5,766 unvaccinated members, 221 tested positive the last 30 days for a 3.83 positivity rate. So it's essentially exactly the same positivity rate in the two groups. Yeah. He says to her, your motion is going to seek to basically cause us to actually lose 4,000 employees for a grand total of a 0.4% improvement in positivity rate. Weird. I, I like it. I like that he's um, being very specific about it. It's great. And they're not. Yeah. Sheila Kuehl, who has been on the council since I was like in diapers, I think. Um, a friend of my mother's, by the way. Well, she's been on the council for as long as I can ever remember. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. So the fact that she's a friend of your mother's gives her just one more notch, slightly above the bottom rung. So she says, <laughs> employees' refusal to get vaccinated or at least request an exemption really, now listen to this part, really puts county lives at risk. It is simply unacceptable. To protect county lives, we have to enforce this mandate, she said. So think about that. She's going to fire 4,000 sheriffs when protecting county lives is the most important thing. Hmm. Do you see and the, the statistics uh, don't add up? Well, if you fire sheriffs, are we going to protect lives by firing sheriffs? No. You're going to people. There's going to be more crime. You're going to have more rapes, robberies, murders, uh, grab, grab, whatever. You're going to trap, whatever. You're going to have everything because you have less police. It's known. Mm -hmm. So if you really, you're going to fall four thousand cops. To, to, that's going to save lives. More than uh, less, but vaccinating them will save more lives than firing the cop. I mean, it, people understand what I'm saying. I'm just bleh. okay. And then the last thing, yeah. the last thing, Supervisor Janice Hahn adds in, she hopes the proposed policy change would motivate more people to adhere to the mandate 
saying she hopes once they understand what the end game is, they will take the opportunity to get vaccinated. So in other words, the end game is to get you vaccinated. And if you don't get vaccinated, you're gonna lose your job. So if you're gonna lose your job, you should get vaccinated. And that's ethical and that's not coercion. Right? Right. Okay. Um, let's see, one last one. If I can do one more blitz. Okay. <laughs> okay. Because it's okay. not only it's not only the sheriffs that are getting threatened with this whole thing. This is from the uh, American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, which is an organization that I I love and belong to. Um, they're the, they're the counterpoint to the AMA. They they support doctor patient relationship and private practice doctors, whereas the AMA is something corrupted by corporate medicine. But we talked about that. We did a whole. I did a whole podcast on the AMA. Mm -hmm. So now insurers are threatening doctors, Bliss. AmeriHealth, a wholly owned subsidiary of Independence Blue Cross, which insures people in New Jersey and Southeastern Pennsylvania, sent a threat letter to physicians about ivermectin. And again, we're talking about January of, of 2022. So we're still yelling at people for prescribing ivermectin. Not only did they say it was ineffective, and that they wanted their members vaccinated, but they threatened to cut physicians who prescribe it out of the network. And worse yet, they threatened to report termination of the participation contract to the National Practitioner Data Bank. So if you prescribe ivermectin as is ethically, uh, morally, and medically an option, you're not only gonna lose your, your network job, which probably be a blessing for these people if they only knew it, but but when you when you get fired from something, when you get laid off from something, that gets reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank, which then goes on to the public and, and view it. And the public doesn't understand that what a ding on the National Practitioner Data Bank means. It just means that that must be a bad physician because the, the trusted government disciplined them. So when we sign contracts with any third party payer, this is the source of our misery. Private or government, we are no longer answering the call that drew us into what we thought was the noblest of professions. The payer, not the patient, has become the driving force behind every decision physicians make. It started under the guise of managing the cost of care. The last three decades have witnessed the net that once proud doctors found themselves caught in growing tighter and tighter. Unfortunately, the vast majority of new physicians have never known independence from corporate controls and have dutifully learned to play the game. The few remaining independent physicians are retiring, or are always out of the or are already out of the arena. The traditional physician spirit has, for all practical purpose, been crushed. We do need to renew the spirit of medicine, and that is one of our tenets on the Birthing Instincts podcast: is to bring people back to the individual client and their and the relationship with their practitioner, and giving them the rights that they deserve of informed decision making and honoring whatever decisions they make. And that's just not happening. My profession, as I've said many times on the podcast, is a, is a, is in shambles, and is a uh, yeah. It's unrecognizable from what it what, what it would have been thirty years ago. Okay, can we talk about this paper? Okay, yeah. Take let's take a let's take a little break for our advertisers. So you know what time it is, Bliss. It's time to talk about boobies. 
Yeah, it's time to talk about one of our good sponsors, Bamboobies, who we love dearly. One, we love them because they sponsor us, <laughs> but two, yes. because they have great organic products. Right. And we're not going to have any sponsors that we can't stand behind what they do. So we love them for that. Yeah, I wish we had like a beer sponsor. <laughs> I don't drink beer, but you do. <laughs> no, I know. No, because I, I mean, Bamboobies is great stuff, but it's not products for Dr. Stu, put it that way. It's products yeah. for products for our listeners, but that's... Products for the bump, breastfeeding and beyond, they like to say. So yeah, it's, you know, they, they, they focus really on comfort for moms, and both physically and emotionally. And they have great products. I mean, we've, we've talked in the past about their nursing pads and nursing bra, and you can mention a little bit about that in a second. But we also talk about um, some of their organic products, including their organic nipple balm, which is 100% organic. It's non-toxic. You don't have to wipe it off before you have breastfeed the baby. Um, it makes breastfeeding more comfortable for the mom. And it's got natural ingredients, including extra virgin olive oil, beeswax, shea butter. You know, I love stuff with shea butter in it, too. It's actually really good for you. Yeah. Even as a guy, I do. <laughs> and, uh, there's no lanolin, or, and it's made in the USA. So tell us a little bit about the, the nursing stuff. Well, they have um, the nursing pads that I've talked to you about that I really love. They're the number one sustainable nursing pad in a wonderful heart shape made with bamboo renewable um, as a renewable source. And the reason they do that heart shape is so that you it's not so visible. Those of you who have worn um, breast pads, nursing pads, you know that <laughs> you can see them through your clothes and it's, it's not cute. So that's the reason for the heart-shaped design and it works so well. And then they've got a really great, um, also made with bamboo um, stylish racerback nursing bra that can be used in your wardrobe that has a little clasp and you can um, breastfeed wherever you're at. So check them out. They're great. They're great for the environment. They're great for mamas and um, tell them about the discount codes too. Yeah. They go, if you go to bamboobies.com and you put in the code instincts, that's I N S T I N C T S. You get a uh, 25% off your purchase. And so we would hope that you'll support them. Um, we are going to encourage them to come out with a organic beer. And uh, <laughs> then I'll be really encouraging you to uh, support them. No, it's <laughs> support them because they support us and they make the, the um, possibility of our podcast um, go. And making great products. So thanks, Bamboobies. Thanks, Bamboobies. That was a great Bamboobies commercial. <laughs> Yes. Okay. Okay. The last topic of the day, almost, then I have a little bit of a monologue at the end, but the last topic of the day is uh, <laughs> risk of infectious diseases in newborns exposed to alternative perinatal practices. You know, again, when I, I, I know that I have this strong red alert button in the back of my brain, but alternative perinatal practices probably used to be what was normal. <laughs> and then, and then, yes. And then they they changed it, and they they then they changed it to alternative. Okay, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American College of Gynecologists in 2014 acknowledged. First thing we're talking about here is water water birth. Okay, that maternal benefits of water immersion during the first stage of labor, but cautioned against the use for the second stage of labor or during delivery because of insufficient current evidence of benefit and rare 
but serious neonatal complications. So they don't, they don't recommend water birth for second stage or delivery. Um, and I'm thinking about this, of course, in the context of everything else we thought about. And so because of rare but serious complications, they don't want you to do certain things. But the COVID vaccine, which has lots of complications, that's okay. You understand my the selection bias here? What's going on? Okay, I do. All right, and I want and I uh, I looked um, at both evidence based birth and water birth international um, at specifically about what they were pointing to, and there's a lot of um, great evidence. If anybody wanted to, because you were saying that you really wanted to go through this in order to give um, providers. Practitioners. <laughs> I can't keep it straight. So funny. Um, the 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 information to be able to talk to their clients about the counseling if their pediatrician wasn't in support of some of these things. So evidence-based birth, although we've said that some of the information that they have is not um always awesome lately, but they do have a lot of great things and they do go through water birth very particularly and water birth international is another really great resource for, um, kind of countering some of this information. Yeah. You know, because we know our position is that these guys are crazy and here's a good, here's a good example <laughs> of their obtuseness. They say, although no increase in adverse outcomes has been noted in clinical trials during water immersion during labor, there have been case reports, complications of yeah, hypothermia, drowning, near drowning, respiratory distress, and infections. So in other words, they're saying that you shouldn't use water birth because of some anecdotal case reports. But it's okay to use fetal scalp electrodes, intrauterine pressure catheters, cytotec, epidurals, they have case reports of complications with those things too, but you can use those, but don't do this. Yeah. I looked at the case reports because I was really interested in um, the drowning. Like that was very curious to me to, to look more deeply into it. And um, one of the case reports that I saw, there weren't many, there were some about infection, um, but it, they, they, these women didn't have any, um, uh, prenatal care and were unassisted, which, you know, I, I'm, I support unassisted births, but the assumption was that all of these were intentional drownings. One was, one of them was in a shower. It wasn't even in a, wasn't even in an actual water birth. It was a shower birth. So, um, it's a very serious thing. I'm not laughing at the fact that someone would drown their child, but that that gets lumped in with an accident that's happening with a provider who specializes in water birth is what I found to be quite interesting, actually. Yeah, well, they, you know, they again, gets back to the point I made of the other paper, too. They have an agenda, and they're going to present data yeah. to the agenda because they don't use the same criteria against things that they like, like fetal scalp electrodes, all right? First of all, they're just the idea is brutal, but but, the, but there have been scalp uh, infections from a fetal scalp electrode. Intrauterine pressure catheters, I've seen it where people have stuck it right into the placenta and ended up causing a partial abruption from putting it in there. Uh, also, maybe infection. Yeah. Cytotec, we all know what Cytotec can do. Uh, 
um, sometimes. And then epidurals can do these things too. And they and there's far more case reports of problems with those things than there would be with water birth that actually carry weight, like you said, they weren't, they weren't uh, you know, these weird things where people are accidentally or purposely, purposely drowning their kids in the shower. But these things are real. Yeah. And they, and again, yeah. I just wish there was consistency and I know that that's never going to happen, but it's my, I feel it's like my duty, part of my calling to keep pointing it out so that everybody who's listening can, can see these things when they, when they read a news article or when they happen, happen to look at a paper or even a book and they read something, even in a, you know, a prenatal book, like what to expect, what you're expecting, when you read something and it makes you nervous, just realize that the people that are writing that, you know, sometimes they have an ulterior motive for writing it. Maybe they're, they're medical based and that's what they, they, that's how they think. So they recommend that families should be cautioned against water birth in the, for delivery, but that's something that we're not going to do. Uh, but this is what the AAP is sending out to all pediatricians. So pediatricians are hearing this. Right. Next one is vaginal seeding. All right. Which is? Taking a, a mother's vaginal flora and putting it in the baby's nasal pharynx, basically. Okay. Yeah. And I, I wrote down, again, I don't know why I have to get to your, oh, the, I said really bothersome logic. So um, in the vaginal seeding thing, it says epi epidemiologic studies have shown a link between a cesarean section birth and an increased risk of development of allergies, asthma, and obesity. Okay. Then they say mm -hmm. later on in the same, the same subheading, they say, there is currently no evidence that the transient alterations of the infant's gastrointestinal microbiome after cesarean delivery will result in long-term changes in the incidence of childhood and adult conditions attributed to cesarean delivery. So one, they're saying there's a link, but they're obviously saying maybe that link isn't the microbiome. But I don't buy that for a second because right. all the reading I've ever done on microbiome makes sense to me that yeah. the, the nose and mouth and the lungs and the trachea of the baby and the gut of the baby needs to be colonized with proper bacteria. And those babies tend to do better. So they've just contradicted themselves in their same, their, their, their same article. Yeah, and they talk a lot about, you know, um, the transmission of GBS and HIV and hepatitis. And, you know, obviously, if you have someone who has a sexually transmitted disease or you're concerned about, uh, you know, um, overcolonization of GBS, it makes sense. Don't seed those babies. You do the risk benefit analysis and that, that doesn't, that those wouldn't be the babies that you would want to colonize with that. Um, but mo the majority of, uh, clients are, are, I mean, all clients in a hospital are being tested and you know, even if they didn't get prenatal care, you've done lab work on them, you know, whether or not they have any of these diseases pre present. So, um, that would be a contraindication, but other than that, there's lots of benefits to it. Yeah. And I, I was just going to get into that. So you've just answered that question, but they're saying that vaginal seeding may facilitate transmissions of pathogens. All right. So I, mm -hmm. of course, being me, I write in the margin. I write, how about serial vaginal exams? <laughs> but <laughs> that's just yes. Okay. All right. The, the yeah. practice of vaginal seeding is not recommended outside of a research setting. When counseling families who are considering vaginal seeding, despite this recommendation, the need to minimize exposure to pathogens should be addressed as reasons to avoid this practice. 
But my question for that would be, why wouldn't that be true in any vaginal delivery? You want to avoid pathogens in any vaginal delivery, not just with vaginal seeding. So anyway. Right. Right. And they, they do say that mothers with known GPS should not undergo this procedure or active herpes, by the way. That's true, too. Right. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to skip the rest of that uh, because we, we all agree on that. Let's see. Okay. What, what is... Uh, Here's here's the term they use. Tell me what it means. Umbilical non-severance. I love it. Oh, you've seen this. Yeah. <laughs> I love this. Lotus birth, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Just the, not, uh, yeah. You know, how about not cutting the cord? <laughs> Umbilical non-severance. Yeah, that's like mm-hmm. cervical incompetence. It's one of those terms. It's just it's a weird, weird term. Yeah. So lotus, lotus yes. birth. It said, okay, so they said. Um, Compared with, it, by the way, it is a bit of a pain for the families to do it. That it's it's extra work for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. I've only had a couple that have done it. How many have you had? A lot. It's not common. It's not a common thing. Basically, um, a lotus birth is that you don't cut the umbilical cord and you let it detach on its own. Um, there are very specific suggestions um, in terms of using salt and herbs to make sure that there's not, you know, to cure it to a certain degree because it is going to rot its flesh. Um, So most people who do it have really studied and looked into it. Robin Lim is a midwife that most of us know. She um, was given the CNN Hero uh, of the Year Award many years ago, and she wrote a book called Placenta, the Forgotten Chakra. So anybody who's interested, she's a really great resource, but this is a spiritual practice. It's, um, you know, and there are traditional ways of making sure that the baby is not affected um, from pathogens. Yeah, they say, they say, compared with with cutting the umbilical cord, non-severance is purported by its adherence to allow a more prolonged and hence easier transition for the baby to separate in a non-violent way. rather than cutting with scissors. There has been no scientific study that measures the effects on the immediate or long-term cognitive or emotional development of infants who undergo cord cutting versus non-severance. And I hope for the rest of my life, there never is a study on that. (laughs) (laughs) There is certainly no known evidence of late onset sepsis resulting from a birth history that included umbilical cord, non-severance. So they they probably searched high and wide for a case report, couldn't find one. At mm-hmm. this time, no formal recommendations or guidance exists for medical or clinical organizations. However, umbilical non-severance has no clear evidence-based benefit to date, except what you just said. It's a spiritual practice. And spiritual practices yes. and bonding of the family, um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Exactly. Okay. Next category. Placentophagy. <laughs> it's such a weird word to say. Yeah. Basically, the consumption of your placenta. Correct. There are purported maternal benefits of placentophagy, including decreased postpartum depression, increased breast milk production, improved iron status, reduced postpartum pain, decreased uterine bleeding, and a general increase in energy. There have been no human mm-hmm. studies regarding these benefits outside of self-reported surveys. And surveys. And the question is, why not? And I imagine it is because there's no money in it. Yeah, I think they're in the process of doing a couple studies, actually, to be able to test um, 
what hormones are present in different phases of, um, of the process. Um, but maybe none of them have been released yet. Okay. And they say the placenta once extruded from the body is colonized with maternal genital flora, handling and preparation may also introduce bacterial contamination. Methods to reduce it include uh, heating, steaming, and or dehydration, which is what sort of we do, right? Yeah, both, usually. Um, mm -hmm. There's one case, one case, they did find one, of recurrent GBS sepsis in a neonate that was attributed to placental consumption by the parent. The placental capsules- They believed the, it was. Yeah. The placental capsules yeah. contain the identical strain of GBS. Um, so for families that practice placental phagy, despite medical recommendations, so if, why are they, why are they, why are the medical recommendations against it? They've never come, they haven't, they just said there's no, there's no downside to it except the one case. So essentially one case gives them a reason to say that. Out of, yeah, uh, but Stu, Stu, think about it. How did the, how did the baby get GBS from the placenta capsules? I have no idea. Right. Right. Not possible. Wasn't it, it wasn't in her milk, which is where you would think that the newborn would have gotten it. So it was just it, the baby got it and it was became a scapegoat. I did a I did a um a Facebook live about this many years ago that's still there. Um it and it was one so funny, one case. Um, you know, if you're going towards like how often would they um use one case to be able to justify some hospital procedure or, you know, yeah, it's ridiculous. Right. Anyways. Okay. Enough of that. Okay. Um, so non-medical deferral of the hepatitis B vaccine birth dose. So again, I just, even the title non-medical yeah. deferral. So why is it non-medical to not take a medication, but it's medical to take a medication? Not sure I understand that. Uh, yeah. Hepatitis B is a sexually transmitted bloodborne pathogen that is transmitted perinatally from birth parent to infant in a highly efficient manner. That's probably true when they have hepatitis. Right. Uh, a single dose of hepatitis B vaccine given within 24 hours of birth is 75 to 95% effective at preventing infection in infants born to infected mothers. So that makes sense. Totally, great. Along, along with uh, HBIG, which is uh, hepatitis B immune globulin. Okay, so then they go on and say, vaccination of newborns with HPV vaccine is safe and well tolerated. Receipt of an HPV, uh, HBV vaccine before hospital discharge is associated with increased likelihood of completion of the full hepatitis B vaccine series. So in other words, if you, if you give your kid one dose, they figure you'll give your kid the second and third dose. So it's almost like a gateway right. drug. It's, I called it a gateway drug. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Start with marijuana, you could end up on heroin. All right. Um, but they also say, again, they get, they, they say the HPV, HBV, HBV, hepatitis vaccine is safe. Okay. Have you ever looked into the testing for approval of this vaccine? Because no. I, I looked into it a little bit and I heard a lecture on it. And um, there was uh -huh. no placebo. It's not placebo controlled. And um, apparently they tested it for 
it was either two days or 15 days. So they watched the babies for two days or 15 days after they gave it, and then that was it. So any side effect that occurred after that or down the road was not recorded. But that again is safe in the, in the vaccine world. Um, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which is that great organization from the FDA that approved 17 to nothing for kids down to age 12 to get the coronavirus vaccine, where the guy said, um, we have to start giving the vaccine to see what the problems are. Um, right. And the American Association of Pediatrics recommends that all medically stable infants weighing greater than 2,000 grams receive a birth dose of hepatitis B before 24 hours of age. You know, I'd be curious to know when that, when that little baby, with that four pound, three ounce baby was taken to the hospital, did they try to talk the parents into getting hepatitis vaccine? Because that baby's under 2,000 grams. I don't know. Yeah. Just curious. All right. So all medically stable babies should get it. The birth dose of hepatitis B serves as a critical safety net for prevention of hepatitis B infection in situations in which the records of the pregnant person are never obtained, ignored, inc incorrectly transcribed, misinterpreted, or falsely negative. Um, yeah, they say there were more than 500 transmissions of HPV in these types of situations over a 13-year period, which means that there's 13 years, there's 4 million babies born a year. Uh, you do the math, that's 52, 52 million babies, and there were 500 transmissions of HPV. Again, how many were those were people who knew their status? So again, for that 514 million, I think that's right, no, 40, 540, 52 million, you're supposed to give the vaccine to everybody. Again, that's not Pretty honest silly. math either, but I'm just using their sort of skewing statistics to make it seem worse than it is. Pediatricians and others caring for these newborn infants may suggest delaying or agree to delaying the birth dose of hepatitis B until an office visit under the assumption that the infant is at low risk for acquiring perinatal HPV infection. Although providers may assume their patient populations are at low risk for HPV infection, low risk is not the same as zero risk. Right. So again, here we go with zero risk, like zero COVID. You know, if this is the new goal, like you can control it. Yes. If this is the new goal for a medicine or a, or an intervention, then we're all doomed. Or life. Or life. Yeah, we're all doomed. Zero risk for life. You're not. You're dead. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Stay inside in a bubble. All right. Let's see. Lastly, we'll skip that and then deferring of well, they don't recommend. They said again, they recommend that every baby should get it, and and obviously we use the informed consent model and we screen our patients and we tell them what the risks are and they can decide. Um, deferral of ocular prophylaxis. Okay, so the, the overall rate of gonococcal conjunctivitis cases in infants under 12 months of age in the United States was estimated to be about four per million. So this is um, declining erythromycin eye ointment. Uh, as as uh, one of the procedures that's done uh, immediate postpartum. Yeah, if Bliss and I were writing this paper, that would have been the heading of this column. <laughs> <laughs> Declining erythromycin as opposed to deferral of, of ocular prophylaxis. Okay. Right. Now, it says here, 
Reference 65 says it is required by law in most states in the United States. Did you know that? No, I wrote that down too, like state legislations. It's crazy. Yeah, apparently 32 states have it. I went online and I searched to try to find a list of states that have it. Couldn't find it. Didn't come up. So, but um, I will also uh, put a shout out to Evidence-Based Birth for their their episode on uh, eye prophylaxis for newborns. They uh, they put yeah, out an update. They're, they're on, a great resource for us. Um, no, uh, in November of 2019, they put out a thing. So you can look back at that one if you want to get more information about that. Now, the Canadian Pediatric Society has advocated against routine use of prophylaxis. So Yay for Canada. Right. You have to get the, um, the vaccine in Canada, but you don't have to have eye drops. So that's good. <laughs> Sorry. One point. And by the way, if ophthalmia neonatorum, which is the eye infection, develops, and if there are effective therapies in countries that have eliminated ocular prophylaxis, there have been no reported increases in the case of ophthalmia neonatorum or subsequent blindness. So we give it, and it's mandated by law in 30, at least 32 states here in the United States, and yet they haven't found a case a babies had suffered from a long-term effect of it in countries that don't mandate it. So why are we mandating it? Well, and, and the, right, and the thing that I wanted to mention again is that it is for gonorrhea and chlamydia, if a, if a woman, pregnant woman is positive or a birthing person is positive with gonorrhea and chlamydia, which we would have been testing for, um, then you don't need it. And then sometimes in the hospital, they'll say it's, um, it's for anything like GBS or any other bacteria that you might have present in your vagina. But that's, that's, they're making that up. They're extrapolating and using that as a way of uh, coercing coercing, coercing you into um, agreeing, um, but you can be tested for gonorrhea and chlamydia and decline it if you are negative. That's correct. Um, so people that have unknown status, if they don't have time to get the results back, um, they still don't need it right away. They could get cultured in labor and delivery and the results will be back in 24 hours. They can wait 24 hours. We just read that they can wait 24 hours. No urgency to get it in right when the baby is trying to do its first visual cues and bonding and to put that schwitz in their eyes. Um, so you have a right, you know, if you haven't, your doctor didn't do cultures or the records got lost and the hospital says, well, we don't have records on you and therefore we have to give the baby the stuff. You say, no, you don't. Just culture me and then we'll take it from there. Make a decision. It's yeah. not an emergency. Okay. Yeah. So uh, delayed bathing. Delayed bathing is the practice of not performing the first bath for several hours after birth. Is that your definition, Bliss? Yeah. Several hours? No, it would be um, weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the World yeah. Health Organization says 24 hours. Um, we in our, in our practice say, why are you bathing the baby at all? You want to take a wet washcloth right. and wipe off the, the crusted blood on its head? Fine. But... Yeah. Don't, don't use soap. Right. right. Because there's a lot of benefits to the, to the hormones and the smells between mom and baby in terms of breastfeeding and bonding. So you don't want to remove that. And you don't, it, in there, it actually specifically says removing vernix. 
Um, and Vernix is, um, it absorbs into the skin so quickly, but it's, it's a protective measure. It insulates and keeps the baby warmer and also helps, um, with, with other bacteria. So it's a good thing. Yeah, it is a good thing. They say the most cited, off-sided benefit is, uh, in, of delayed bathing is increased rates of breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking that that's a benefit. I don't know that that would consider that the most off. Well, maybe it is the most off-sited because they don't think about the microbiome, that sort of thing. So that may be a true right. statement. Um, and a lower likelihood of hypothermia if you delay bathing. <laughs> so, and, less and less separation time. So why would you bathe the baby? I still remember, Bliss, yeah. all those years in the hospital where I took the baby and held it in my arms and double clamped the cord and cut the cord, held the baby up for the parents to see and then walked it over to the warmer so that the midwife could, I mean, the nurse could wipe it down and clean it off yeah oh my god yeah 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 and then bring it back all wrapped up in a blanket yep with a hat on with a hat on exactly <laughs> uh delayed bathing may preserve those initial skin in the neonatal skin microbiome in the presence of vernix um so they basically at this time the only explicit american academy of pediatric recommendation regarding bathing is related to uh, infectious risk for those infants exposed to hiv so if you're not, if HIV is not involved, there's no reason that babies need to be bathed right away. Okay. They also say, oh, wait, they said bathing should be initiated as soon as possible after delivery in cases in which the newborn infants are exposed to active HSV genital lesions. So I don't know if that's true either. Um, but again, in our world, we don't see that. It looks like we lost bliss. That's oh high for you. Okay, so vaginal seeding may expose infants to vaginal pathogens such as GBS or HSV and has no known benefits. That is not true in our world. Uh, again, this is what the American Academy of Pediatrics is putting out so that pediatricians read this and they're gonna advise you against it. Your OBs are then gonna hear it from the pediatricians. They're gonna advise you against it. And I just want you to be aware of the biases that are out there so you can take this information Take the information that your midwife or we are telling you, weigh them into your into your world, your worldview, and decide which way you want to go. Uh, lotus birth has no clear benefit and may possibly increase the risk of neonatal sepsis. That when they say may possible, that's one of those things again in my world that is one of those red flags where it's, it's may possible. May possibly, it also means may not possibly. So that it's one of those words that doesn't really mean anything. Eating the placenta should be avoided because there's no evidence of benefit to the caregiver. And one case reports it to GBS sepsis. So there's very differing standards, okay? So, you know, we know that the vaccine is, is in, has no benefit really basically in healthy kids, the uh, COVID vaccine. And there are many cases now of teenagers with boys, especially with myocarditis, and they tell you you should have that. But here they're talking about don't eat a placenta. So again, you know how we feel about these things. Bliss has been very clear about that. Uh, hepatitis B, we're against it, unless the parents have hepatitis B. And if they don't know, then you can quickly draw blood on them, get that back within probably stat in most hospitals within a few hours and find out if they're hepatitis B positive. If that's the case, you give the baby the, the, the vaccine and HBIG. Um, you don't really need to put goop in the eyes and delayed bathing is, we think is a really good idea. So that's that. Yeah, um, uh, all right. 
I was I wanted to share this with Liz, but I'll, but she'll have to get it like you guys did on the uh, on the uh, podcast when it comes out. Um, something in my feed today. The last thing I'll say in my feed today was that I got a thing from Alex Berenson. Some of you may know him. Some of you may hate him. Um, he's been sort of correct on the pandemic the whole time, calling out things and actually using evidence from the world to back it up. Pays attention to this. This is sort of what he does. He's written a book on it. And um, I don't think that he's the kind of guy that's getting rich on it. Maybe he's made some money. Obviously, he makes the television appearances and stuff like that. So you have to take that with a grain of salt. But he put this out today um, saying that, that the United States Department of Homeland Security has put out an updating uh, summary of the terrorism threat to the United States. United States remains in a heightened threat of environmental envi a heightened threat environment fueled by several factors, including an online environment filled with false or misleading narratives and conspiracy theories. In all my life, I have never heard of people saying things that and equating them to terror threats. This is extremely dangerous. What's, what, what they're saying right now, that if you don't follow what we tell you, if you say something against the government narrative, now you're a terrorist. I mean, think of the history of our country, how people stood up and, and, and stood up against the government. That is what citizens reinforce. That's what democracy is all about. This administration has gone nuts in the Justice Department and its subsidiaries like the Homeland Security Department have gone nuts. These threat actors seek to exacerbate societal friction and so discord and undermine public trust in government institutions. Well, yeah. To encourage unrest, not necessarily, which could potentially inspire acts of violence. Again, there's that thing, potentially inspire. If you're gonna use that as your standard, then nobody can say anything, and that's exactly what they want. A federal agency says that to undermine public trust in government institutions is now considered terrorism. Speech doesn't even have to encourage rebellion or violence generally, much less against anyone specific. It just has to potentially inspire violence, potentially, potentially. Later, the bulletin explains exactly what speech the government now considers a terrorist danger. They say widespread online proliferation of false or misleading narratives regarding unsubstantiated widespread election fraud and COVID-19. Okay, there's that word again, misleading. Who's defining misleading? Misleading to whom? Misleading how? In the papers and in the blitz that Blitz and I did today where we went through all these things, you see that there's a a consistent theme of we're right, you're wrong, we're going to do it anyway, your personal autonomy means nothing, um, one size fits all. This is, a, this is a scary time. I've never seen this before in my career. And again, I've been in medicine now 40 years. Um, so this is very scary. And, and what, it, what it all boils down to, what I may have mentioned earlier in the podcast, was something called moral absolutism. Which basically means you're so certain of your position that and that gives you the moral high ground. And the moral high ground um, makes it so that you don't have to listen to anybody else. Okay. So there are certain universal principles um, to judge people with. However, here's the problem, and you all know what the problem is. There's always going to be disagreement with these universal principles. So whose moral principles, whose universal principles are correct? 
And, you know, you know, it's them, it's the golden rule. It's them that has the gold that makes the rules. So they're powerful. They have the police behind them. You know, again, in our country, fortunately, we have the second amendment in places like Canada. I'm not asking for uh, armed rebellion, but the fact is that they're arresting people who are peacefully protesting the city. There was a meme I saw yesterday that said, uh, Trudeau, the, the prime minister of Canada, is wants to arrest the truckers for shutting down a city so that he can continue to go on and shut down the city, um, which is what they've been doing for a really long time with their lockdowns. So again, whose moral absolutism is correct and nobody's is correct. And that's the thing. This is, this is what we should be debating. We should be seeing, again, the people in the government who think that lockdowns work, that masks work, that vaccines are the only way out of this thing, on stage with the Robert Malones and the Peter McCulloughs um, and have a conversation. We never see that. You've never seen Fauci on stage debating somebody who disagrees with him because he's, so, he's got his moral absolutism that he's right, you're wrong, and you should be shut up. And now we have the uh, Homeland Security Department telling us that those of us that are speaking what we consider to be our moral absolutism, our truth, but it doesn't jive with theirs, um, are going to be considered terrorists, really? Okay, well, they know where I live. Um, I'm certainly a small potato guy, so they'll come after the big guys first. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll come after the little guys and shut us up. Um, if not, I hope to see you guys next week uh, on behalf of Bliss and uh, hoping for better technology in the future. Uh, this is Dr. Stu. Thanks for listening, guys. We know um, we love having you, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 